the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, news of Saul's death reaches David and he and his men mourn and honor their king in song. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11. Once again that's 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 11. Look at verse 11 in 2 Samuel 1. Then David took hold on his clothes and he rent them. This word is really strong. It means he was harsh with his clothes, severe. This was not just an act. Well, this is what I have to do because the king's dead. He's my father-in-law and I've got to show I'm mourning. I mean, you know, rip a sleeve. He gets violent with his clothing here. He rips his clothing. And then notice it says, likewise, all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. They weren't fasting and praying. They didn't eat because they were too sad to eat. You ever been there? They were depressed. This is awful news. They were heartbroken. And while we can understand every line there, there's one that's difficult. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul. Certainly their tears are not just for Saul. But the fact that the man who did them so much wrong is mourned for, meals are skipped over, speaks a lot of these men. Were they angry? Had they been angry with Saul? Yes. Had they been betrayed by Saul? Yes. But these were not disloyal citizens. If something could have been worked out with Saul, if, if, if Saul had let them, they would have followed him to the ends of the earth. These were loyal men, loyal citizens. But now, any hope of a happy ending to this mess, any dreams of, of that hope coming true is now dead. Their, their king is gone. The army of their people is slaughtered. Their nation is in all essence, gone. You say, wait a minute, their nation's not gone. There's tons of people alive still in Israel. Yeah, I understand that. But 
we don't understand kingship in our country. In fact, it's a mark of our nation's DNA that we've rejected kingship. Whether that's good or bad, I'll, I'll leave others to decide and debate. But I will tell you this. When you don't understand kingship, it is very difficult to understand the Bible. Because we are unique in our cultural experience there. In our culture, we tend to see being a subject as a negative thing. It's why when I do weddings and we do the part where it says that the wife is going to make her vows, she's going to submit to her husband, you hear a hush over the crowd. Is this 1905? I always hear it. Did he just say submit? We see being a subject as a negative thing. Just the very idea of being a subject. No, I'm not. I'm free. But the Bible views being a subject as a glorious privilege. And thus it views that when there's no king, you're a subject of no one. Now, our culture views being a subject of no one as freedom. But the cultures of the Bible view that as meaning you don't belong anywhere and to anything. You see, David and his men are now left in no man's land. They know they can't go back to King Achish. There's no, there's no going back to that. They're not Philistines. The last year and a half was a wasted year. But now they have no ties that bind them to their homeland, to anyone or anything. And they know that's how the rest of their people are feeling too. Where do we go from here? Who are we? What's the plan? And so they mourn. Some of the men they mourned were ungodly men. Many of the men they mourned were good men. But they mourn for all of them because there's not a single Israeli that wins upon hearing this news. Which is why David now confronts this young man. Verse 13. David said unto the young man that told him, where are you from? Because he knows he's, he's an Amalekite. He, he's kind of suspicious about why an Amalekite would be in Israel's army. I mean, I'm trying to think of, of something appropriate that without offending too many people. But maybe the closest equivalent you might get is one of Osama bin Laden's sons being in our army. It, what are you doing here? You, you don't belong here. You're an enemy. You're someone who thinks that we're the great Satan. Why, why are you in our army? That's what an Amalekite's like doing in the Israeli army. Where are you from? I don't buy your story. And he answered, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. Israel was supposed to treat foreigners well. But this young man isn't exactly aware that David isn't feeling very friendly towards Amalekites right now. And he should have followed, if indeed his story holds true, that this is how it went down with Saul. He should have followed the armor bearer's example, who refused to kill Saul when he was commanded to, instead of killing the Lord's anointed. And so in verse 14, David said unto him, How was it that you were not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's exactly what the armor bearer felt. First Samuel 31, 4, 
Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not because he was so afraid. No. I'll do anything you tell me to, but not that. Because he feared what the Lord says above what his king said. Why were you not afraid? You, you claim Saul gave you a command, but you should have honored the Lord's command above that. You should have honored, honored the Lord's calling on Saul's life above his command. Apparently the guy has no excuse or answer. And so David called one of the young men and said unto him, go near and fall upon him. And he smote the man, the Amalekite, that he died. And David said unto him, he doesn't feel guilty at all about this. He says, your blood be upon your head. For your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. We are innocent of your blood, of your death, because this is your fault. You confess to your guilt of murdering God's king. And for that, you cannot live. Verse 17, David now composes a song to honor Saul and Jonathan. David lamented over this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah. The King James says the use of the bow, but it it literally means the song of the bow. So that's the name of this song. He bade them teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So when it says here that David lamented, it means he sang a dirge. He composed an elegy with this lamentation, the song of mourning over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And this song, when David became king, he commanded the children of Judah. So we know this is early in his kingship. We'll get to that later. David did not become king of all Israel for quite a while. There's actually a civil war that's going to be fought in Israel with uh, Saul's one remaining son who's alive. But David will only be the king of Judah for, I think, the first six or seven years of his reign. And then he'll be the king of all Israel for the last 30-something years of his reign. But David, when he composed this song, he made them teach the children of Judah this song, and it was recorded in something called the Book of Jasher. Now, the Book of Jasher is a book of songs and poetry that's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. It's These songs or these poems, they are about important points in Israel's history, important battles, important events. Sometimes people see that and they go, well, we're missing a book of the Bible. This is not a missing book of the Bible. People wrote other things back then that weren't inspired by God, just like people write things today that aren't inspired by God, okay? That the Bible references those works is simply acknowledging their existence, not that they were part of Scripture. It's referencing something, so as you read your Bible, go, oh, I know, I know, okay, and in the book of Jasher, we've had someone read that to us, and, you know, okay, now I know this, it's an important song, it made it into this history book or this book of poems from our history, of songs from our history. Verse 18 seems to indicate that David probably composed this song later on, not probably right this moment, uh, so that he could instruct everyone in Judah to honor Saul and Jonathan through singing it. But whenever David wrote it, it is a beautiful song. I, I mean, I would love for something like this to be sung at at my memorial service if the Lord tarries, especially by somebody who didn't like me or someone that thought, you know, I I treated him horrible. 
because it's a song that gives dignity to both Saul and Jonathan in death. Now, did David owe Saul that? No, he didn't owe Saul that, but David didn't do it because Saul deserved it. He did it because he loved Saul. Because there were good things to remember despite the awful things that happened. Listen, if a betrayal hurts, it's because you care. If you didn't care, it probably wouldn't hurt so much. Maybe you might get mad. But it only hurts when you care. And so David had cared. He loved Saul. And there were good things to remember, even though there was lots of awful things that happened. So David begins with this dirge, this elegy by lamenting the loss of Saul and Jonathan. He says in verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Do not tell it in Gath. Do not publish it in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. David laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan because Israel's most beautiful part of their nation is now gone. The word beauty there in verse 19, it refers to an ornament. Saul's family, Saul and Jonathan in particular, were like the the bow, you know, or the star on top of the Christmas tree. I mean, the rest of the tree was beautiful. The rest of the decorations were beautiful, but these were that crowning gem. Now it's gone. Now they're gone. They were slain upon your high places. It means the the hilly places. Mount Gilboa is a big hill. How are the mighty fallen? The powerful? How they have fallen down? You don't get more powerful than Saul in Israel. If he has been defeated, then how will the rest of the nation be victorious is the idea. This is bad. This is worthy of mourning. You think to yourself, if you, if you look at the facts, you think, David, this might actually be better for the nation. Like Saul's it's not a good king. But that's not how David sees it. David's heart was like the Lord's here because he saw the valuable and the beautiful things in Saul, even though there was a lot of vile things. He says Israel's most beautiful part is gone. He laments because Israel's enemies will be emboldened. So he says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't publish this news in in the streets of Ashkelon. These are royal cities in Philistia. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. The word there, triumph, means to exult. Lest they say, nothing can stop us now. Let's just attack all Israel. David is concerned for his people's safety because although Saul had been his enemy, Saul had also been a great protector of the nation from the Philistines on many occasions. And then David calls a curse on Mount Gilboa for not helping Saul. The song is very poetic. He says, let there be no dew on you mountains of Gilboa, neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings. Why? Well, you didn't help Saul. Very poetic language. You know, David curses the hills of Gilboa because they didn't give Saul special treatment. He treated his shield like it was just anybody's shield. He treated him like he was just he hadn't been anointed by the Lord with oil, that he's just another soldier. 
Again, poetic language. The hills didn't make a bad decision to not help Saul. But David is using this poetic language to show how special Saul and Jonathan were. How important they were to the nation. Verse 22, David now extols Saul and Jonathan's good leadership. He says, from the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, they didn't send other men to fight the hardest battles. They were on the front lines defending their nation against the most powerful soldiers of the enemy. They were mighty warriors and verses 23 and 24, they also brought prosperity and happiness to Israel. Saul and Jonathan were lovely or They were those who were loved. They were pleasant. They were pleasing in their lives to the nation. And in their death, they were not divided. Most people loved Saul as their king. They loved following Jonathan. And while Saul did try to kill Jonathan for his support of David, we know that those two reconciled. They supported one another literally to the very end. And up to this point, they'd been an unstoppable team. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And so, verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. Now that they're dead, David calls all Israel to weep. The time of the judges was not a prosperous time. Israel was fractured and frequently invaded by their enemies that surrounded them on every side. But Saul had brought economic prosperity due to national unity and the stability that that brings to a people. And so no matter how hard Saul had made life for David, he had made life better for so many others. Saul's death wasn't a cause for any Israelis to rejoice, even though it did mean an end to David's personal situation. And you know, those who have God's heart, they see the bigger picture. Life is more than just about me. Isn't it? It is. My problems are not everyone else's problems. There are bigger problems that should concern me than my own personal comfort. And then finally in this elegy, David in particular is heavy-hearted about Jonathan's death because Jonathan was truly the best friend David had ever had. He said, how are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Oh, Jonathan... You were slain in the high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been unto me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? I'm distressed, he says. The word means my heart's pinched. David experienced deep emotional pain at the loss of Jonathan. He can understand God judging Saul, but this didn't seem to fit with Jonathan. And this wasn't the way he pictured their friendship ending at all. He said, very pleasant have you been unto me. Very dear, very loved is what that means. So much so, he says, your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. The word love there refers to strong affection for someone based on a relationship that's already been established. In other words, something happened with us. There, there was a, a way that, that we came together that we had this strong bond. 
And it was wonderful. It was wonderful there means extraordinary, surprising. Most friendships formed by mutual interest, even most marriages formed by mutual interest. I mean, very rarely is it where, you know, the guys are pursuing the girl, the girl's pursuing the guy, and they want nothing to do with it, and all of a sudden it does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen that way, but usually relationships, friendships, they, they form by mutual interest. David's commitment to David was extraordinary because Jonathan was the initiator of their friendship in every way. I mean, he just came to David one day and he took off all of his armor and gave it to David. David, has, he's nothing. He's a, he's a shepherd. And Jonathan just keeps heaping his honor upon his men. It says he just loved him. He just, he initiated in every way. David wasn't looking for a friend. David wasn't like, you know, hey, I'd love to get in with Jonathan, you know. Jonathan just took an interest in him and pursued him. And, and if you've ever ended up in a friendship like that, if you ever do, someone who seeks you out, who's committed to you no matter what, you have truly found something unique because that's not the norm. He says it passes even the love of women. It's more than. Now, what does David mean, passing the love of women? David could be referring to the commitment women have to each other. That's probably the best way to look at this here. He also could be referring to the marriage commitment. He says, yeah, the love that you, you have had for me was greater than I mean, David's got three wives at this point. You love me more than any of my wives. (laughs) He could be saying that. David would be a poor evaluator of either how women love each other or how marital love is supposed to work since, number one, he's not a woman. So how would he know what a woman's commitment to another woman is like as far as friendship goes? And how would he know how marriage is supposed to work since he didn't do it God's way? So again, I don't think these words are meant here uh, to give us instruction on how marriage or even friendship works. These words are meant to be poetic, to speak of Jonathan's surpassing commitment to David in friendship. And please, please do not try to find a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David in these words. He's saying, yeah, the love we had was greater than any I had for my wife. You know, you were, you were my boyfriend or whatever. First off, David doesn't call him his boyfriend here. He calls him his brother in verse 26. There is not a single romantic word used in any of these verses. And in addition to that, I highly doubt David is going to teach the entire nation a song that promotes homosexuality when it's a capital crime in Israel. I do need to bring up that one of the reasons people come up with these bad interpretations or add these weird ideas to the scripture is because we fail to understand true friendship in our culture. We fail to understand that I can be close to someone without having a physical attraction to them. That I can be close to someone without seeking to get more or to take something from them. That is not friendship and that is not love. We have another word for it. It's called lust. Jonathan's commitment to David gave Jonathan nothing. David added nothing to Jonathan. He was already the, as high as you could be in the kingdom, except the king. In fact, Jonathan's friendship with David caused Jonathan quite a bit of trouble. But Jonathan's commitment and love to David is the kind of love that the Lord has for us. And so it brings us full circle. John fifteen three. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. And that's what Jonathan did for David, which is why 
David speaks so highly of his love and his commitment. A friendship, nothing to do with romance. A true friendship. And why does it bring us full circle? Because in Acts chapter 13, verse 23, Paul, as he's talking about this man after God's own heart, he concludes that thought. He's going to move on to another one afterwards, but he concludes that thought with Jesus. Right after he talks about how God removed Saul in Acts 13, 22, and how he put David on the throne and described him as a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. He says in verse 23 of this man's seed, David's seed, has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. The man who said in John 15, I no longer call you my servants. I call you my friends. And greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. Amen? Jesus is the ultimate man after God's own heart. And that's what he did for us. So, Lord, that's our desire. We do want to learn from David, but ultimately we want to learn from you because you are the perfect man after God's own heart. Lord, we want to follow you, follow your footsteps, to be men and women after God's own heart, to be those who dive into your heart and allow you to influence our heart in such a way that we understand you, that we know what you want. So God, as we study this book of 2 Samuel, will you do that? And would you make us men and women after your own heart? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.